Hey, good morning. Go ahead and grab a seat. Make yourself comfortable. It's good to see you. It's good to have you here. Hope you're having a great summer. Um, I know we got a lot of people out of town. We got a lot of people watching. I hope you get an opportunity to get out and enjoy this great weather. It's really nice today. Hey, listen, if you have a Bible, turn to Exodus 5 and Exodus 6. We're going to be pulling out maybe just chunks out of those two chapters as we keep marching through the book of Exodus. And while you're turning there to the book of Exodus or the chapter 5 of the book of Exodus, I'm going to read a punchline out of it to maybe just set the, set the table for us as we go through this. Exodus 5.22 says, Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. This is a point of crisis. We've come to a very deep moment of crisis in our story. And one of the things you're going to see clearly in the book of Exodus is that God is heavily invested in installing a, an unshakable courage and a trust in his people. That, that's what he wants to do. He wants to put a deep sense of faith and trust in you that although it's rattled and although it's banged around, it does not come apart at the seams. Especially whenever we hit walls. We don't just go straight to despair. Because let's face it, we're going to hit a lot of walls. That's normal to do so, right? Especially, especially if the Lord is involved in the matter, right? If God is in, involved, if he is doing something and he's inviting you into the process, he's inviting you into his work, you can count on, you can count on your faith being shaken. Go ahead and bank on it. Greatly challenged. And after you obey the Lord in a matter, let me just tell you, something will go wrong. Something will go wrong. You're going to wonder if you did the right thing because something went wrong. This is what we call buyer's remorse a lot of times. Right? You get this thing called buyer's remorse when you make a big ticket purchase like a house or a car. The next morning you wake up with a little bit of decision hangover like, oh my gosh, what have we done? Listen, we can get the same thing whenever we step out and we obey something that God has invited us into. Did I hear God right? Maybe I didn't hear him correctly. This, this isn't what I expected to happen. I, I thought he wanted me to obey in this direction. I thought he wanted me to take a risk and be courageous in this direction. But I'm in the middle of a stinking mess. And I'm not sure this is really the right thing that needed to happen. In fact, if you obey the Lord in tough areas, right, you step out into obedience, you're also going to find yourself flanked by people who don't believe that you did the right thing. They will not support you. You'll be surrounded by people that will say that you missed it. Maybe you're being a little bit too radical. Maybe you're taking things too seriously. Maybe you heard the Lord wrong. In fact, I remember whenever I left medicine or, or the, the trajectory to be in medical school and went into campus ministry, I was surrounded by people that were telling me I was doing the wrong thing. And I remember one wise man who was real helpful in that season of my life. He said, Luke, for every step you take away from the work of God, you will have a lot of people there to applaud you. Every, every step you take away from the activity that you feel God is calling you into, you are going to have people around you telling you you're doing a great job. And for every step you take towards the work of God, you're going to have people saying you're going the wrong direction. And I think that's true. And not just people will fight you back whenever you're being obedient in a difficult direction. Just creation itself will. Everything will fight you. Money will tell you to be disobedient where God has called you to do something. Money will. Time will. 
Time will tell you it's going to be easier to just be disobedient. Here, here is the thing that we're going to see in our passages today. You will find resistance in obedience. You're going to find heavy resistance in obedience. In fact, you're going to be stepping into a headwind. I see it a lot as a pastor over 20 years now. You will have somebody that's struggling with being obedient in a certain area. Maybe it's being um, obedient financially, right? Giving to the kingdom of God, whether it's their local church or a missions agency or a missionary, whatever. But just, just wrestling, grasping with, should I be obedient here? Or volunteering or, or whatever, leading, leading your spouse um, in a Bible study, being in a Bible study, whatever it is, it's a big risk. It's a big step into obedience. And as soon as they do it, something happens, right? You finally start writing checks to whatever in the ministry, your local church, a missions agency, and then the radiator blows out on your car, right? Or you start to give your time into the church or into missions or into your missional community, and then everything goes haywire at work, and you lose your job, and you start looking at it all, and the wheels fall off, and you think, what have I done? This isn't what I thought was supposed to happen. Things have gone from bad to worse. But let me just tell you, and as we will see over and over again in the book of Exodus, this is where faith is built. This is where trust is built, in the headwind. When things are going from bad to worse, this is where trust is forged. Because indestructible faith is not cheap. It's not cheaply built. Does it comes from a place of deep challenge or it just simply doesn't come at all. That's how we build this unshakable trust. And this is what God is invested in. So let me just put it in maybe a, a, a way that we could all understand. Whenever you find yourself praying, Maybe you're having a moment with the Lord. Maybe you're reading whatever your reading plan is telling you to read that day. And you get to this point where you're praying before the Lord and you say, God, I just want to believe you more. I want to have more faith. I want to trust you more. I want to trust you when trusting is hard. That's just a normal prayer. I want to grow closer to you. And then you shut your Bible, close your journal, go refill your coffee, get in the car, you drive on to work, you listen to the Lecrae the whole time, you're praising God, you're excited about God's call, and then you lose your job. And then you lose your job. And the car breaks down, and you get more bad news and more bad news. Let me just tell you something. You asked for that. That's what that prayer effectively did. You asked for that. Whenever we pray, I want to grow in my trust and I want to grow in my faith, what we are really asking God to do is to give us points of crisis. We're inviting it. We're recruiting crisis in our life so that we would be shaken, so that trust would grow, so that faith would grow. And I think one of the reasons we're so surprised by this in our lives is this prevailing doctrine that we have that, to be honest, we weren't even really taught. It's more of a primal doctrine that we, I guess we grew up with. That if we just trust and obey the Lord, we will have what's called easy success. Things will just be easy for us, right? Give and more will be given to you. Risk yourself into the Lord and everything will be fine. That's what we're taught. That's what I grew up hearing. If you obey, God improves your standard of living, right? I would hear men of God stand from the stage or in Bible studies and preach something like this in Luke 6 where it says, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Therefore, give money. 
Therefore, give time. Therefore, give your talents into the kingdom. Friends, that's not even talking about money. That passage is talking about judgment. It's talking about judgment. We do not have easy living after obedience taught anywhere in the Bible. It's not there. In fact, we have the opposite taught in the Bible. Most often, obedience will not bring easy success. It's going to bring a headwind. It's going to shake your courage. It's going to shake your sense of trust, right? I think my suspicion is is that we have that primal doctrine in us that we get easy success after obedience because it's contractual in in a way. And, And that's the way we like to think as people. We think in terms of contract, right? I do this for you. You do this in return. I invest this, I get a return on that investment, right? That's the way I think. So sometimes obedience comes into the picture, we think, in terms of cost-benefit analysis. If I do this, then surely God is going to make things easier. If I invest my life here, surely the path gets flatter, the path gets wider, right? I think that's just what we all grow up with. And here's the truth. The truth is, is there is a return on the investment of our obedience. Maybe not here. Maybe not now. But there is. This is what Paul tells the church in Rome. He says in Romans 8, stay where you're at in in Exodus 5. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So Paul says, no, there is a cost-benefit analysis. There is a return on our investment. There there is something that is going to happen, but it's just not going to be here. So listen, if we want a big faith, You need to know that you cannot build a solid trust and big faith without a crisis of belief. They come hand in hand. In 1998, I came home from a wild conference, a college conference, um, to tell my parents that I was leaving, and not not leaving college, but leaving pre-med so that I can start to raise money, to hear me now, to start campus ministries inside of church plants. That sounds highly lucrative, doesn't it, right? To start something that probably won't make it off the ground inside of something else that's likely not to make it off the ground, right? It's like a 90% chance of failure, and I was throwing it away. So my parents were super excited about that, right? Not really. They were not excited at all. Luke, you're ruining your life. The dean of my school, Luke, you're ruining your life. My advisor, Luke, you're ruining your life. All my friends, Luke, you are ruining your life. But I felt this unmistakable call to join the work of God and what God was doing on the college campus. Unmistakable. I had a giant resolve that could not be talked out of. I was ruined for it. I was never more sure of anything in my life. And I thought that I would come home from that conference to a road paved with high fives and encouragement. Wrong. Wrong. I've seen this at Legacy too. People swing for the fence and trust the Lord, obeying his call, obeying his commands, only to get discouraged when things turn out to look a little bit worse than they had hoped for. New givers, as I said, feel financial pressure. New missionaries encounter a lack of receptivity. New parents feel the effects of the fall, right? New forgivers find that trying to patch a relationship back together is a little bit messy. New evangelists find mockery with the people that they tell about Christ. And so what happens is is rather than allowing that moment to galvanize a deeper sense of trust and faith in them, they bounce. They move on, right? This isn't worth it. Maybe it's a sign. That's the one I hear the most. Maybe this is a sign, right? 
I mean, I did. I, I stepped out in obedience, right? I wrote the check, and then the car broke. Maybe this is a sign, right? I mean, I tried to be more missional, and I told this person about Jesus, and now they won't return any of my texts. Maybe this is a sign. Whatever it is, maybe this is a sign. Why? Because God doesn't want things to get difficult? Because he's not going to shake you? That's the price tag for it, as we said. So let's look in our story, which is going to be very helpful for us today. Because what we're going to find out is a crisis of belief, which is where Moses and Aaron are going to find themselves, and the people of God, by the way. That is the worst of all places to be, a crisis of belief. And it's also the best of places that you can possibly be. Because this is where we're grown, and you're not going to grow without them. So how do we handle sufferings and discouragements that we recruit into our lives by obeying God? That's going to be the big picture. So let's look at four. We're going to go back one verse. Just to, again, set the stage. We're going to be reading five, pieces of five and pieces of six. But I want to go back to the 29th verse of chapter four. Just to kind of maybe pick up the baton from where we were last week. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. Well, that's easy enough. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. That's where things are at right now. Right? I mean, just to... Just to recap it, they came and they disclosed the plan of God. They introduced who God was and what God was about to do, and then he verified it with some signs. And we talked about that last week. And this was the result. They believed, bowed their heads, and worshiped. Easy, according to plan. Just like God said, give us something hard next time. Right? That's a softball. Because I want you to remember, Israel had been enslaved for over 400 years. That's older than our country. That's how long they'd been enslaved. And finally, they feel heard and known and seen. And this is the greatest news they'd ever heard in their life. They finally have hope again. They finally have hope again. Now, every day that they clock in to make bricks might possibly be the last day that they have to make bricks. So they're dreaming again. Dreaming about their future. What could be. This is what happens in verse 1 of chapter 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Okay, so Pharaoh asks a question that God is going to spend the next 35 chapters answering. Who is this God? And why should I care? Who is this God? And, and who really cares? Right? Same question we get today, by the way. Who is your God? And why does it matter? Pharaoh's not asking out of a sense of curiosity, but mockery. He knew who this God was. He's got a, about two million people in his land that are worshiping this God. What he's basically saying is, God, huh? I'm a God. I'm a God. And we've got about 80 80 to 90 gods that we worship here in Egypt, and you want me to freeze my economy for your God? I don't think so. In fact, I mean, let's just face it. Since you have so much time to come and talk to me about this, and your people have so much time to complain about this, and then he pivots the whole conversation, verse 3. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews, 
has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with the pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of Israel are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens? Okay, so we have something that's going to be very frightening for these people as they go on. They're going to have to do more work. Things are finally getting from bad to worse. Things are going the opposite direction. Let's just keep reading. The same day the Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw from themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore the cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let their heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to their lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus say Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get the straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather straw or stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, your daily task each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all of your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? This is a terrifying passage. (laughs) It's terrifying. How desperate things are getting, how bad they're getting. I don't want to drift too far from the guts of the passage here. All it takes for us is for our car to go into the shop, right, or to pick up an extra shift at work or for Wi-Fi to stop, and it just totally implodes our week, right? It just makes things really difficult. This is, this is the kind of stuff that wrecks families. This is the kind of stuff that destroys lives. People were already dying to keep up with the load. I mean, that... That's why this load was put on them to begin with, was to temper and maybe even extinguish the people of God. And now it's harder. Now it's worse. So this is what happens in verse 19. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh and said to them, the Lord, look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. Okay, now the blaming begins, right? And why not? Nothing's going like it's supposed to. Nothing is. God told us to do something. We did it. Good things are supposed to happen. So what's going on here? It didn't happen like last time. Last time we obeyed and it was awesome. It was a worship service just out of nowhere. But now, now things are getting more difficult. Everyone in this moment is having a crisis of belief. Moses Aaron, the people, 
everyone having a crisis of belief. And this won't be the last time we see it in the Bible, by the way, or in Exodus. Exodus is a bowl full of crises, as we will see. They go from one crisis to another. But then again, God is in the business and very good at installing an unshakable trust and faith and courage in his people. Very good at it. Very invested in it. Very interested in it. So it's going to be a high value for us today. In fact, if we were to just pause the story right here, we find a lot of familiarity with what's going on. Sometimes we follow God and we find a stinking mess. Sometimes. I mean, earlier they were believing, they bowed their heads, they were worshiping, and now they're hunting straw to do work that was already difficult under the hot sun while being beaten and pushed to the brink of extinction. By the way, if you were to hop on a plane and go over to Egypt, you'll still find some of these bricks. A testament to the terror of, of, of this season, of this moment. You'll still find them. They're still there. Bricks full of straw that was chased down in order to meet a quota, proving that your crisis of belief, it's not new. And God's method of building a trust and a faith in us, it's the same method, right? Here they are, they're searching high and low for straw. They had to have thought in their mind the same thing you would if you were in their shoes of, not sure I'm trusting Moses again. This bet didn't work out. Not sure I'm trusting God again, now that I think about it. Not sure I'm going to hope anymore. Not sure I'm going to dream anymore. Just not sure about all of it. It probably produced people that were done with God. Right? We have them today. They're called duns, literally. I mean, if in the church world, some of the, the categories that we use to describe people and how people interact with the church and how they interact with God, we have those that are called nuns. This is all fairly new, too. Those who are nuns, not like nuns like, you know, an outfit, Catholic nuns, but nuns like they have no affiliation with God, the local church, or a belief system. They have none, right? Then you have duns. Duns are people that have grown up maybe as a child or maybe as a young adult, and then they come into this place where they decide they are no longer going to be affiliated. They have no affiliation with God, the local church, a people of faith, you fill in the blank. You have nuns and you have duns. We still have duns, right? We have different words for them today. The, 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 the most recent one I've seen, de-affiliated. There are de-affiliated people, deconstructed. That's the, that's the biggest one, right, to be deconstructed. And I see them all over social media, see them on YouTube, see them in the news, the deconstructed duns. They claim to have graduated from Christianity, right? They've left it behind. They're more honest people now, more authentic people now. Let me tell you, it's just window dressing. They've hit a point of crisis in their life that did not, they did not make it through. They hit a place of crisis. And they said the same thing that Moses was saying here, you are not good and you are not here and you don't know what's going on. And they have pushed away. Listen, I know pastors who have done this. Now, it's going to be marketed, especially in our culture now, it's going to be marketed as something that's very authentic and noble to do. Like it's an honest thing to deconstruct in front of everybody, right? To work that out loud in front of a watching world. It's seen as courageous. Finally, I'm, being, I'm, I'm honest. I can live in my own skin. Those are the things we hear. All it is is crisis. And it's just fish-shaking towards God. It is nothing more honorable or noble than that. But here's the thing. We're all just one crisis away from this, aren't we? I am. You are. Ever wonder what it would take to get you to shake your fist at God? 
Ever wonder how close you are to blaming God for your misfortune? I think we're all probably a little closer than, than we think, right? They were just worshiping God with bowed heads, tears in their eyes, dreaming, hoping. That was just in the last verse. Now it turns into, Moses, you did this. Aaron, you did this to us. And then to have Moses say, God, you did this to us. You did this. God is resolved to install an unshakable faith in all of us, which can only come by rattling us. It's the only way we get it. This is what he's doing to his brand new nation. This is what he does to his family. This is what he does. Where have you sensed God leading you into an area where things have gone from bad to worse? Maybe it's happening for you right now. It's very likely you carried it in here with you, right? Where is that happening for you? Has it left you wondering if God is good? Has it left you wondering if God is even there? If he's very smart, wise, thoughtful, kind, gentle, has it left you thinking that? Notice, these are the questions that Moses has for God. He's questioning his goodness. Why have you done evil, he says. And then he questions his strategy and his plan. Why did you send me? Things have only gone from bad to worse. Let's just be honest. This is exactly where God wants the scene to be. This is not an accident. All, all the characters on stage are standing on their mark. God is not puzzled over how things got here. He's not wringing his hands because he might lose Moses' faith, who is his MVP and his quarterback here. That's not what's happening. Everybody is doing exactly what they were supposed to. Everyone is exactly in the place that God wanted for them in this moment because he's building a bigger faith in Moses, and he's going to be building a bigger faith in his people right there. This is what he says in Exodus 6, verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. That was his answer. None of that, by the way, is new information to Moses and Aaron. They had already heard this. They already knew this. He's repeating himself. But that's good. And that's what we need. We need reminder. He's reminding, this is, by, this is by way of reminding them that he is good, that he has a plan, and he's going to get it done. That he is a promise maker, and you can count on it, he's a promise keeper. That's what he's saying. And there's power in reminder. 
even today. I mean, we, we throw the term around here all the time, preaching the gospel to ourselves, right? We say it all the time. We drop it in, in, in conversations. I say it from the stage constantly. And how we preach the gospel to each other. What is that if it is not a reminder of what God has done, of who he is, of how good he is, of how strong he is? There's nothing wrong with calling a stinking mess a stinking mess. Not at all. Calling a spade a spade. This is what it is. There's nothing wrong with, with slamming into a wall and wondering where God is. Wondering, where are you? This went from bad to worse. I don't see you anywhere. Nothing wrong. And when you feel like obedience has left you in a painful place, has left you abandoned, you are sharing, hear me now, you're sharing a moment with Moses and Christ. You're in a room experiencing the same thing that these guys experienced. I mean, this is what it says in Matthew 27. And don't turn there. Stay where you're at. But you have Christ on a cross. And what does he yell out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Jesus was obedient. The obedience brought discomfort. And even then in this moment, even in this moment, through grit teeth of pain and suffering, he shows us the power of reminder. If, if, you're, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible or, or maybe even the Psalms of the Bible, what you need to know is when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's starting a sermon that David finished a thousand years earlier. That's out of Psalm 22. This is what the first words out of the 22nd Psalm is. My God, my God, King David says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. What is he doing there? Was that just the only verse he could remember because he was in so much pain? I mean, it's important that we memorize passages, right? I mean, that's a totally different sermon, but in, in points of pain, sometimes it's just the best we can to grab a psalm here or a piece of a letter there and just recite it. Just to ner- Is that what he's doing? Just grab something random? Or is there a design in what he is saying in this moment? Listen, when when people are in their last moments on their deathbed, when every word is measured, pay attention to the words. He's quoting Psalm 22. And this is why, because this is how it ends. If you go all the way to the end of the 22nd Psalm, this is what King David says. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Again, through the filter of pain and rejection and agony, Jesus begins a sermon that David concluded generations before. And this is the punchline. This is the resolution of what he did. The afflicted will be cared for. Their hearts will live forever. The edges of the cosmos will turn to the Lord. He is preaching the gospel. He's preaching it to himself. He's preaching it to you. He's preaching it to me by way of reminder. When you find yourself holding broken pieces after you stepped into the headwinds of obedience... When you find yourself doing that, you need to know that you are in good company. That's experiences that you're sharing with Moses and Christ. Let me just tell you this. You want to know Jesus more. You can't know Jesus deeply unless you experience moments like that with him. That's how we get to know people. We experience things with him. 
And you also need to know you're right where you need to be in order to grow in your faith and in your trust. You're right where you're standing on your mark. You need to remind yourself, God is good. God is good. God is good. I mean, God is really good. He's really kind. And he's thoughtful. And he's gentle with us. And he has a plan. It's from before time started, he had a plan, a strategy. Right? There's a purpose. This gospel that we preach to ourselves, it's not just for unbelievers. It's also for believers. It's not just for those who are far from Christ. It's those of us who are in Christ. That's what Paul says in Romans 16. When he says that now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, we are strengthened according to the gospel. The gospel is something that makes us strong. Listen, i got to revisit the gospel all the time because my life, just like yours, is a story of jagged lines from one crisis to the next. It is. It is. We live in a broken world. We do the best we can. I've shaken my fist at God like you have. I've blamed God like you have. I've blamed people. I've felt abandoned, wondered if it's worth it. I've seen many people to my left tap out, many people to my right courageously deconstruct. I've seen it just like you have. And without the good news of God for mankind through the generous general of Christ who came to live perfectly, die passionately, live again, to give you and me his very own spirit, the one that lifted him from the grave, that we would be changed from the inside out until the time where he decides to collect his family again, where we get to walk and bask in the radiance of his glory. I've got to preach it to myself. Without the gospel reminder that everything that is broken is going to be reversed just because he's good and he's thoughtful and it glorifies him. And we're most satisfied in the same place he is most glorified. Without the gospel reminder that I'm also free to fail. I'm free to fail and not be not loved anymore. Without this gospel, I come apart. I come apart, just like you. We are one crisis away. Without the gospel, we are one crisis away. So there's a lot of places to repent in a passage like this. We could maybe repent today because we're blaming God where we feel like he is wicked and we are wise. That's how it works out, right? He's being unrighteous in the moment. We're being very righteous in the moment. Where is it today that you are tempted to question God as Moses did? What are you going through that you are tempted to say, why are you being evil, God? And why is this your plan, this mess, this stinking mess? Why are you so thoughtless here? Why aren't you very good here? I mean, I stepped out and I obeyed. I did what I thought you called me to do, and I find a mess instead. This gives us an opportunity to just confess. God, I'm coming up short. But I do trust you. Not totally yet, but I'm getting there. I need deeper faith. I want a deeper trust. That even in moments like this, you are good and kind. Can't see it now, but I know it's there. I need your spirit to help me. That's what a prayer can sound like, is you're pivoting from this place of despair to a place of robust trust. And listen, for those of us in community, if you're in a missional community, we're in a DNA, a, a tight-locked a tight group. How are you engaging with people 
who have risked themselves into obedience and have found that things come apart at the seams? Are you helping them navigate that? Are you helping them work through that, right? Are you watching after their heart, after they make such a big step? When people deconstruct and become duns, it's not ever really surprising for people that are closest to them because there's a prelude to deconstruction. There's a prelude to just cashing out and being done. It's accusations, depression, anger, angst, anxiety. You could see it coming. You could see it coming. They need help. They need to be reminded of the gospel. It's not always easy to preach that to ourselves, right? And as we make disciples as a church, know that obedience will build trust, but expect resistance. Expect it. Help the people around you see that it's normal, right? But as Paul says, man, all the suffering in the world, it's not worth just a second of the glory that we're going to have with God in eternity. And friends, listen, if, you're, if you are still searching Christ, if you're watching online or you're here and you are struggling with the idea of Jesus, maybe you're just kind of scouting the edges of who Jesus is, you're trying to figure out this thing called Christianity, maybe, maybe, maybe you're skeptical of the whole thing, let me just tell you, you're going to find wreckage in obedience. Let me just be frank with you. It's not going to get easier. It is going to get harder. Okay? Maybe rip some of the romance off of this. You will find wreckage in the obedience. It is not an easy path. It is not a wide path. It is a narrow path, and it is full of moments where things are not going to turn out like you would hope that they would turn out. Just to be honest between you and me. And yet, leading us through such a narrow path of landmines is a kind shepherd. A kind shepherd who cares for us. And he carries eternity in his arms. And a big heart because he's a good God and he's thoughtful and he's in control and he's watchful and he understands and he sees and he hears and he knows and he is with us and it is worth it. We have a lot to celebrate today in a passage like this, right? In fact, go ahead and stand with me if you, if you can and we'll go ahead and finish this part, this part of the church service out. And listen, if you came in and you were, I mean, I know we have a couple tables there. There's a lot of people and everything. We had these communion elements. If you're a Christian and you would like to take communion with us, in a second, a young man will come in here. And if you raise your hand, he will give you one of these if you didn't get one when you came in. But listen, if, if you're a Christian and you're not a part of Legacy, we invite you into this moment. Okay, we'd love to have you do this with us. If you're not a Christian, don't worry about this. This is just something that we do as a church. We rally around the table of Christ, right? This is effectively, Legacy is a reunion. These Sunday mornings are a reunion of our missional communities where we come together around a common meal, okay? That's another way of looking at this morning. But this bread and this blood shows us that Jesus passed through a crisis of belief. And that's really what we're doing. He came through a crisis of belief, tempted to point and blame and grow despondent with God. He was tempted, just like you are, and yet he was perfect. He was perfect. When we take communion together, we are reminding ourselves of the gospel. I mean, he says, do this in remembrance of me. We are reminding ourselves of the gospel. We're preaching the gospel in this moment, right, both in word and in deed. Right. So, Father, I thank you for this morning, and I thank you for what you're doing in your people. I know that we had a lot of people walk in here this morning, and we have a lot of people that aren't here this morning. And those who are watching and those who are sitting, I know 
if you could hear a sermon like this, you have points of crisis. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know if you uh, have a family member that is sick, dying, lost your job, miscarriage, losing your marriage. I don't know what is going on. But Lord, I know that as we are here in this room, we represent a tremendous amount of crises. So tempted to shake our fist at you. So tempted to say that you are not good. So tempted to say that you are not here and that your plan is bad. But Lord, we remind ourselves. We remind ourselves that you came, died, and lived again. As a generosity towards us. To be hospitable towards us. That you are good. That you are thoughtful. And so, Lord, as we take something like the bread, it's just a, a remembrance of a body that was broken. A generous king who vacated his body up on the cross for us. It's an act of kindness towards us. So, Lord, we do this in remembrance of you. Go ahead and take the bread. And, Lord, as we have the juice, as a reminder of the blood that was spilled. Father, we just see the, the icon and the logo of what it looks like to move into the headwinds of obedience. That when we do obey, it's not always easy. A lot of times it's a mess. I mean, in Jesus' case, he was killed. And yet, you were good and you were thoughtful. And your spirit raised him from the tomb. And that spirit is given to us, your church. So, Father, as we take this, we remind ourselves of the heavy, heavy price tag of trust and faith. So we take this in remembrance of you. Go ahead and take the juice. So, Lord, I'm just going to say this, and that is that you would install an unshakable faith and trust in us as a church. And I know what we're really asking for when we pray a prayer like that. We're asking for more crisis. That you would shake and rattle us and put us in the place where we say, God, okay, this hurts. Are you really good? Are you really still there? Are you here? Can you hear me, see, understand? Are you going to be there? Are you going to catch us? Are you thoughtful? Is this part of your strategy? Where we're tempted to shake our fist at you and deconstruct where we're tempted to do that, Lord, that treasured place, that very thin and treasured place where you build our faith, that is what we're asking for. I know I can't speak for everyone in the room, but for our church, Lord, I pray that you would give us whatever it takes to build a robust trust and faith in us. Lord, that we would enjoy you more in the midst of a life like this. Father, you are so good to us and you are so kind in your plan, in your gospel story. Help us become fluent in how we preach it to ourselves and preach it to others. Lord, I want to learn how to say the gospel in different ways, with different words, in different situations. That could be a ministry to people. That could be a ministry to my own heart, my kids, my wife, my neighbors, everyone around me. Help us be a fluent church. That we are good at reminding ourselves of the promise and the strategy of God. 
And Lord, I pray for those who are listening or are here that are struggling with just the idea of God. Just the idea of it. And maybe part of the thing that's keeping them out, Lord, is just the idea that, man, life, life can get very difficult for me. Life can get much harder for me if I step into this. Lord, that you would encourage them that it will. But you are enough. And the depth of our satisfaction is found in the place where your glory is the highest. The depth of our contentment is found in the same exact place where your glory is shown. And that with all of the suffering and all of the pain and all of the broken pieces, you, as Paul says, are worth it. Are worth it. All the suffering is worth it. So, Lord, we love you. We worship you. We sing to you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Excellent. this i thought of this song uh scripture it says come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and i will give you rest and i think a lot of people have heard that but then the next verse kind of like i was like oh it says take my yoke upon you and learn from me for i'm gentle and lonely in heart and you will find rest for your souls and god doesn't promise to take away our burdens but he does promise that our souls will find rest. And I, I totally misinterpreted that scripture before that. And uh, I do think that we should pray that for God to strengthen us, to bear our burdens, and then give thanks when he removes them, but also be thankful when he gives us the strength to bear them. And uh, I just pray that. God would strengthen us in that. Mm -hmm. 